I could be one of two things. I could be nervous or I could be faithless. Because here's what happened. Last week was a very powerful time in our congregation. I think we learned, I think we grew, I think we understood some things. And I really have had a very good understanding of exactly where we were going and what we were doing and where we were going to end up and how it was all going to work out. And I had all that, you know, structured and ready and worked out and ready to come and talk to you about it. And guess what happened yesterday? It just went away. That didn't go away. I have all the knowledge. I have all the, all the things that I learned. Everything is in there. But as try as I might, God just never put it together for me. And we're talking about the Spirit of God, right? We're talking about the Ruach HaKodesh. The word spirit in and of itself is kind of a strange word. Remember, the King James translates this as what? The Holy Ghost, which is even more strange. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit in and of itself, spirit is a strange word. If you draw it all the way back, it comes from spiritus in Latin, which can mean breath. But it also has really this connotation of a little fairy, a little sprite with wings or a phantom or a ghost or something like that. We all know that spirit in Hebrew is the word ruach, which really does mean breath. And so I'm not getting weird on you about spirit and not saying spirit or anything like that. It's the Holy Spirit. But, but I think identifying us as we're looking for the, what does the spirit look like, we're searching after the ruach HaKodesh. So I had it all, but it didn't, it didn't actually work out. And so what did I do? I got down on my hands and knees and I screamed and cried and I said, God, why are you doing this to me? I didn't do that. I listened for what he might be saying if he wasn't telling me what I wanted to hear. And what he said was, get up there and do it. I'll give you the words. So let's do that. It's out of my comfort zone right? Because I want to come prepared and I want to have all the answers, which I never would anyway. But it's out of my comfort zone. Um, And so I'm either, that's what I said, I'm either nervous because I'm out of my comfort zone and not in control, or I'm faithless because I don't really believe what God said. I don't want to be either of those. So instead, what I'll do is just start talking. Because if we believe that the Ruach, if we believe that when we're in a situation where we're supposed to share Yeshua with someone and we don't have all the answers, or when someone is in need of a word of encouragement or a word of power or a prophetic word or a word of healing, if we're to actually believe that that comes from the Ruach HaKodesh, then he should certainly be able to do it here in our midst. And so my prayer, Ha'el HaTov, the good God, Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven, I pray that your words be spoken in this room today, this holy room, this sanctuary, this, this gathering of your children who have come to know you more, who have come to draw close to you. I pray that your words will indeed flow and that 
I will have the mouth to speak obediently and that we will all have the ears to hear. In Yeshua's name. So last week, though, we did, we kind of ended up, we, we, we took a look at the Pentecostal birth. We looked at the, the gifts of the Spirit. We looked at um, uh, how, how that kind of got where it was and, and where it ended up. And then we asked, like, well, well how, did, how did we get to this point? And we looked over the last 116 years and we saw the birth of a movement. And then we see that there's 500 million charismatic Christians in the world and, and Pentecostals and, evangelists and evangelicals. But I, my suggestion was, well, you know what? That's that, but why don't we actually look at the Bible? Why don't we look at the Bible and see what it says about what it looks like when the Ruach is operating in power? Why don't we check the Bible? And I said, well, we'll, look in, we'll start in Samaria. But before I do that, does anyone know who John Stott is? John Stott is an is a, is a Anglican priest. He's died in 2011. But he was very, very influential. He was an Anglican priest who, who said, I don't know if they're priests or preachers or Anglican Church of England. John Stott, he was, he was all about evangelism. And that wasn't a big part of the Anglican Church from what I understand. <clears throat> I don't agree with some of the things that John Stott said. He was an anti-Zionist. He, he, he didn't believe in the birth of, of the new birth of Israel as, as we would see it. But John Stott had some amazing, amazing ways of phrasing things. And as we look, and I was, he's got a book that's called The Baptism and the Fullness and the Work of the Holy Spirit Today. John Stott was an evangelical, but he was not a charismatic. He was not a Pentecostal. He was very Evangel evangelism focused, but I don't think we would even be able to apply the term evangelical to him with our connotation attached. So he wrote this book, and this book is really kind of opposed to Pentecostalism. It's opposed to certain things. But he says some, what I will call Stottisms, that I think are incredibly valuable for us in anything that we put our minds to understand, especially things that are controversial. Because like it or not, what we're talking about here is very controversial. It's very divisive if it's allowed to be. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power of tongues, prayer languages, gifts of healing, how you do that, what that looks like, this is very, very controversial stuff. And some people have built their lives around defending certain things that they do. John Stott said this, the will of God for the people is in the Word of God. That is simple, simple truth. Now, we talked about truth last week. And we said that truth, unfortunately, in our context has subjectivity to it. Because your truth may not be my truth. But this statement, the will of God for the people is in the Word of God. Only when the Word dwells in us rich, richly can we evaluate experiences that we and other ha others have. Now listen to me when I say this. From his book, and I want you to think about it before you react to it. 
Experienced must, experience must never be the criterion of truth. Truth must always be the criterion of experience. Now, what we have that surrounds us in the majority of our religious communities, Protestant, Evangelical, Catholic, whatever it is, much of today's experience with God falls under the, the blanket of experiential. My experience with God is the most important thing that happens. How I feel when I encounter God is my barometer, my basis for whether or not my time was well spent at services, at church, at any Bible study, at any event. Okay? How did we get there? Well, we got there from what we talked about last week. And here's something very, very interesting to consider. Do you remember last week talking about modernists and fundamentalists? This, this, these two camps of Bible interpretation that were going on in the late 1800s, well, earlier than that, but let's focus on the early 1900s. Modernists and fundamentalists. The modernists, I want to take a more scientific approach to understanding God. Fundamentalists, no, you can't do that. Inerrancy and blue laws and, 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 and evolution and all, like there was just this, 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 this. And I asked you, who was left in the middle? Who was left who was cast aside? You were. The people. Because most people don't care about that. Most people don't care that much about theology. They want to know God. They want to have a relationship with God. They want to understand the Bible as much as possible. So what happens is, they're doing this and the people are just out there. And something happened in California at Azusa Street, which we will use the term revival to describe. Because I believe in revival. I believe that the first and really like unbelievably amazing revival took place in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And what was present there? The Ruach HaKodesh. What was running the show? The Ruach HaKodesh. But at Azusa Street, something happened. All of these people came in there and, and, and somehow along the line, somehow, somewhere, and we talked about it last week, it became apparent that if you were speaking in tongues, then you had the Holy Spirit. And if you had the Holy Spirit, then you had an additional level of power. You had something else. You had this, as we described last week again, this third act of grace that took place. You had the salvation in Yeshua. You had a second act of grace where you're being sanctified. And then now a third act of grace where you're being sealed by the Holy Spirit. And people looked around, and I told you, 1,500 people some days were coming to Azusa Street. Why? Why? For the experience. Because you cannot argue with experience. You can argue with me about theology. You can tell me that's wrong. You can tell me this is wrong. You can tell me all these things. But you cannot argue with your experience. Because it's yours. 
And I told you that last week, talking about, for instance, a prayer language in tongues, okay? Incredibly controversial. Tongues in general, controversial. I've seen it cause major problems in congregations. But if someone says to me, I speak in a personal prayer language, that is my thing with God. Is it my place to tell you, that's stupid. You can't do that. That's not scriptural. It can be scriptural, depending on how you read Paul. And I can, if you tell me that, I can give you 10 reasons why you should And then I could find 15 why you couldn't. And then I could find another 25 rebuttals to those 15 about why you should. But the bottom line is, it's an experience. And what happened in Azusa Street was that there was no arguing with that. That is my experience. And it's real to me. And it means something. And people came to have this experience. But... Is that really what the Spirit of God is leading us to? Is the Ruach HaKodesh leading us to personal experience? And furthermore, and much more importantly, because I I had so much, and I think this is why God said, settle down, young man. I had so much that there is to say about some of the things that go on in the communities around us. We could have a four-week seminar on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whether it's real, whether it's not, whatever it is. I want you to know something. I absolutely believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you know why I believe that? Not because of Azusa Street. I believe that because it's in the Bible. I believe that because the mouth of Messiah Yeshua said that to his disciples. John said it about Yeshua. He said, I baptize in water, but one is coming who will baptize, you know, with with the Spirit and fire, right? And then he told them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power on high. And basically, you're going to be immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh. Did that happen? It absolutely happened. It absolutely happened. But what has happened is that somewhere, some way, somebody decided that there was a formula for how the Spirit works and that we need to be able to tap into that, that we're basically in control of the Spirit to some degree. I'm going to have you stand up here. I'm going, and this is an example. It's not a criticism. I'm going to have you stand up here and I'm going to just pray over you and I'm going to put my hand on you and I'm going to push you and I'm going to anoint you with oil and I'm going to do this and I'm going to teach you how to speak in tongues and you just do it and do it and the Spirit is going to come because you're in control of the Spirit. No, you're not. No, you're not. Are tongues a legitimate part of a move of the Spirit? Absolutely. Did that happen in Acts when the disciples were immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh? Of course. And what what, what were those tongues? Those tongues were languages, right? There's no denying that in, in Acts 2. 
But if we jump over to Corinthians 12 and 14, and, and we start looking at the gifts as Paul describes them, pause, thought, just a thought, just a consideration. When you have an entire culture and half a billion people who are consumed with trying to share the gifts, operate in the gifts, control the gifts, manipulate the gifts, I have this question. If that was our calling, if that is what the Ruach HaKodesh is calling us to, which is to learn to master these gifts, do you not think that Yeshua would have spent some time talking about them? Some time. He doesn't even mention it. Don't you think that Peter and Paul and John and Ringo, no, not Ringo, he wasn't there. Don't you think that they would have done like some extensive teaching about this? Don't you think Paul would have taught extensively about it if it was the ultimate pursuit of goodness in our relationship with God? Paul does talk about it. You know where he talks about it? Basically four places. Romans 12, 14. He skips 13's about the gifts. Right? 12 is about the gifts. 14 is about the gifts. 13 is about the gifts. But do you know what chapter 13 does? Chapter 13 basically takes 12 and says these are all these really cool and important things. And he says, and eagerly seek them, right? Eagerly seek the gifts. And then he says in 13, but love, like above all things, if I could speak in 10,000 tongues, why did he choose 10,000? 10,000 was the highest number in Greek thought, I think something like that. If I could do that, great, but if I don't have love, if I don't have love. And so he basically, and he says prophecy is going to pass away, and he says tongues are going to pass away, and he says all this stuff, and then he jumps back to 14, our brother Peter who said, listen, Paul's kind of hard to understand. You really got to tune in. He jumps back to 14, and he opens it up by saying, so seek love and the gifts. He talks about it in Romans. He talks about the gifts in, uh, where's the other place? Well, that was Corinthians, there's Romans, and then maybe um, uh, Ephesians. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 4. Okay? That's a pretty small section of the Bible to be talking about something that we're pursuing or, or told to pursue with such vim and vigor. Now listen to me. Here's the other thing. I absolutely believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do I, however, believe that that is formulaic and that we can control it? No. But where would I look to find that answer? I will look in the book of Acts where I see first the Ruach HaKodesh being poured out in a powerful way. Now let's look at some examples here of what it looked like when people became believers and the Holy Spirit was involved. We've already talked about Acts 2. There was a genuine, there, was, there were tongues, there were fire, the Spirit was like, I would just love to have been there. Okay? Then we jump forward to chapter 8, and I told you this is where we'd start last week, but we're getting there now. We jump over to Samaria. Remember Samaria? Remember who went to Samaria? Philip went to Samaria. 
and Philip was sharing Yeshua. And the Sumerians, what are also known as half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Jewish and part of the Assyrian exile and all kinds of this confusing stuff and they didn't get along well. And these Sumerians are accepting Yeshua. Pay attention to one guy who was there. His name was Simon. I'll come back to Simon. But what happened? What happened next after their coming to know Yeshua? John and Peter are sent over to Samaria. Why? Because no one could actually believe that this was happening. The Samarians? Samaritans? Jeez, I'll get that right. Samarians. Samaritans are, are accepting faith in Yeshua, but they hadn't received the Ruach HaKodesh, right? My friends, this right here forms the basis to some degree of an entire theology that influences our believing world. This idea that they accepted Yeshua but did not have the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Is that because we, we, we needed to create some formula? Do you know why that is? Because the apostles from Jerusalem went and verified that everything had happened. Who was put in charge when Yeshua left? The disciples. He said, you will bind and loose what is bound and loose in heaven will be bound and loose on earth. That is rabbinic terminology for what you allow will be allowed, what you forbid will be forbidden. And they had an, they had an authority. So they were sent to Samaria to go check out what's going on and what happened when they got there. They were amazed and they laid hands and what happened? They received the Holy Spirit. But what didn't happen? No one spoke in tongues. Go down just a little in chapter 8. There's a eunuch from Ethiopia, very wealthy queen servant, right? He's riding down the road in his chariot because he's a queen servant and he's rich. And he's reading out loud. And he's reading Isaiah. And he says, explain this to me. And what does Philip do? He explains it to him. And what happens? He becomes a disciple of Yeshua. And then there's a second act of the Holy Spirit being poured. No, there's not. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit. There is. Do you know what it is? It's to take Philip up in the air and transport him somewhere else. So does that mean that the eunuch who's now... Eunuch. That's the Hebrew way to do that. It's not even a Hebrew word, but every time I see CH, I have to... He's transported off. Next chapter, verse 9. I mean chapter 9. Our brother Shaul and his interaction with Ananias. Hananiah is his Hebrew name. And what happens here? Paul is blinded, right? Scales. But Paul becomes a believer here. And how does that work? Ananias says, first of all, Ananias says, God, don't send me that crazy guy. He'll kill me. But Ananias is faithful, and he does what God said to do, and he goes. And Paul, and he says, Brother Shaul, God has told me to come to you and pray. And what will happen is, I will pray, and the scales will fall off, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
And that's what, the, that, that's what happens. But it, it, it actually says that the scales fell off and then Paul was immersed. Okay? So we don't really get a clear description of what's happening with the Holy Spirit here. We certainly don't have any indication of anything related to tongues as a sign or seal that he is now a believer. One more chapter forward. We're getting some good stuff here. How many is that? Three or four? That's, that's Jerusalem. That's Samaritans. That's the eunuch. That's Paul. Chapter 10, Cornelius. The big one. The big one, right? How does this one work? Even more amazing. Who is sent to Joppa to verify this? The rock. Why is he sent? Because he has authority. You see, Yeshua said in Acts 1, yeah, Acts 1, you're going to go out and it's going to happen in Judea, it's going to happen in Samaria, and it's going to start in Jerusalem, it's going to happen in Judea, it's going to happen in Samaria, and then it's going to happen to the ends of the earth. What's happened here? Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now where are we? Basically, the ends of the earth. Okay, because it's the Gentiles. And so Peter goes with the authority of Yeshua to go and verify this. And how does it work? Anyone remember the, the, the pathway? They pray. They are immersed. They receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. No. Again, I'm leading you down the wrong path. Let's just read it, shall we? Because this is, this is very important. The subtitle, The Ruach Falls on the Gentiles. While Peter was still speaking these words, what are these words? These are the words that God gave him in the vision that God has told me nothing that you've called common, I shall call unclean. So he's eating a pork chop on a cheeseburger here. <laughs> no, he's not. He's doing what the vision said. He's going to the Gentiles to speak to them because God told him to and showed him in a dream. I mean, in a vision. And so what happens? He's talking about that. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Ruach HaKodesh fell on all those hearing the message. They were not believers. They were God-fearers, but they were not disciples of Yeshua at this point. The Holy Spirit fell on all those hearing the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astonished because of the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking tongues and magnifying God. Then what happened? Then they were immersed in the name of Yeshua. So I want you, after I've just given you these examples, I want you to lay out for me for homework next week a clear and particular formula for how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Can you do that for me? Because if you can, you're not reading this Bible. And also want to talk about this as we talk about tongues. 
because what has happened here in Acts 10, and I've never really thought about it enough to, to, to really love it as much as I do now. This is Pentecost 2. You realize it? It's Pentecost for the Gentiles. The 3,000 in Jerusalem who were saved on the day the Spirit fell, the Spirit had already fallen. They were already speaking in tongues. And then Peter's giving this message of salvation, and then they become immersed. And 3, 000, about 3,000 were saved that day. That's what happened in Jerusalem at the first Pentecost. It's not really Pentecost. It didn't happen on 6 Sivan. Maybe David knows that it did. But I don't know when Cornelius became a believer. But 6 Sivan is the, is the day of Pentecost. It may not have happened there, but symbolically, it's another Pentecost. They're speaking in tongues and the Ruach HaKodesh has fallen. And then they receive in power immersion in the name of Yeshua. And it goes from here. But I want to mention those tongues because there's something very interesting about this. It says all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astonished because the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and magnifying God. Now, what do you think the tongue was that they were speaking? This is my opinion. Hebrew. Why would it be astonishing if they're speaking some language that no one knows? And furthermore, how in the world could they know they were magnifying God? And I, listen, I'm not making fun. I'm just, I'm, I'm just using this as an example. If I, if I do this, do you know if I'm magnifying God? Do you know what I'm saying? This is part of what Paul's talking about in 14 with interpretations. And maybe somebody has an interpretation of what I just said. I don't know. But I don't think that's what they were doing. And there are many arguments that say, no, this is the ecstatic speech of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think they were miraculously these Gentiles, God-fearers, God puts a seal on them with the Ruach HaKodesh, and now they begin to speak in Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue, giving praise to God. And these believers around them, are, they're amazed. How can this happen? So, unfortunately, there is not a formula for how the Spirit works. And more unfortunate, no. Well, Maybe. Maybe it would be really nice if we had a formula for how the Spirit works, right? And you know what you could do with it? What you could do with it is what Simon tried to do in chapter 8. Do you remember Simon in Samaria, the magician? Simon became a believer, and then Peter and John showed up, and the Ruach HaKodesh was poured out. And what did Simon do? Simon went and said, I want that. That's cool. I can use that. I could use that. How do I? Let me, let me get in on that. Do you know that that's what's happened to some degree in our world? The Spirit has become something that people try to manipulate, that they try to sell, that they try to control. 
And that is not, not what the Spirit is or what the Spirit will allow because we're not in control of it. Now, should we pursue, this goes back to our question that I've asked from the beginning, what does the Ruach HaKodesh look like in a Messianic synagogue? If that's not it, and I think this Bible verifies for us that while I don't discredit or, 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 or dislike or mean to malign another tradition in any way, I don't agree with that tradition, and I don't think it represents the Word of God well. And you cannot base truth on someone's experience. Thank you, John Stott. He also has another Stottism that says, this isn't about arguing, it's not about being right. It's about drawing us all close together with God. But I, my question of, of what does this look like, I don't know if we're actually any closer to that because what we've identified is what it doesn't look like. And this needs to be said. We must, must eagerly seek the greater gifts. Paul, who was anointed by Yeshua himself, instructs us in this teaching. Well, actually, he instructs the Corinthians. Another statism, which I'll throw at you, is just because something happened in the Bible, just because someone's experience is in here, does not mean it's your experience. Do you know people like that? Who every situation and everything that happened in this Bible is theirs to claim. Well, let me tell you what that means. If that is the case, then the story of Ananias and Sapphira means, my goodness, you better never tell a lie, and you shouldn't anyway, but if you do, guess what? You're going to drop dead because it's in the Bible. That was their experience. It was something to teach you. It's didactic. You know that word? Like we have to learn from the experience. Or how about this? The Acts community... They sold everything they had. They all came together. Their possessions were pooled. Nobody suffered. There was no pot. How? You, you sinners. I see cars out there. You're wearing clothes. And you are spending your own money instead of putting it in the... I'm passing this around. Everything you got, all your credit cards, put it in here. Because that's what Acts says. It's a lesson. It's didactic. It's to learn, right? Now I totally lost my train of thought because that was a silly thing. But <laughs> we know what it doesn't look like. We know that we should pursue the gifts with an eagerness. And all of those gifts in their proper context where the Spirit is choosing how to manifest those gifts according to the Word of God will transform any environment. 
It will transform any environment. A word of knowledge, a prophetic word, a word of faith, a healing. You know, I would give, I would, I would love for someone to be able to stand up anointed by the Ruach HaKodesh and give a, 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 a tongue, a, a lashon, a, a, a glossa in Hebrew, and have someone from Pakistan walk in off the street and say, I heard you. I heard what you just said. And I believe that happened in Azusa. I believe it. Because I believe Azusa was also a revival. And as is too common, men corrupt. But here's the thing, and this is where I want to go next week. I want to go into, do we need the Spirit? Yes. Are we lacking some of it? Yes, we are. Partially because of confusion. Partially because the issue is so confused. Partially because maybe we don't ask. Partially because we don't believe. I don't know what it is, but we're lacking some of it. But I believe that Jerusalem, Shavuot, that was an incredible move of God and a revival of the Ruach HaKodesh. And I believe that Cornelius and Joppa, that was miraculous and the Spirit of God was present in power and had fallen. I believe that there have been situations throughout the ages where the Ruach HaKodesh has shown up in an effort to do what it is that the Ruach HaKodesh really does. And do you know what it really does? It's in here. It's in here. And we are in the midst. I am absolutely convinced, and not to get weird on you, I am convinced that God is so close in our time, in our day, of bringing about a revival. I don't even like the word because of its connotations, but I'm talking about a revival where the Ruach HaKodesh is doing what it does around the world. And it is drawing people into God. And when you allow the Ruach HaKodesh to do what he, it, she, if you really want to be honest, the Ruach is a feminine word, right? But we don't call it she. If we allow the Ruach HaKodesh to do for us what he really does, then do you know what comes next? Then we confidently operate according to the Word and according to the Spirit, in spirit and truth, according to God's way. We operate in the holy gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh. It is in here. And next week we'll talk about it. Ken? Shabbat Shalom.